my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Kristen Donnelly. She is a four-time TEDx speaker, an international empathy educator, and researcher with two decades of experience in helping people understand the beauty and difference and the power and inclusivity. She is one of the good doctors of Abbey Research, COO of their parent company, and an unapologetic nerd for stories of change. Kristen lives outside of Philadelphia with her husband, where they are surrounded by piles of books and several video game consoles. Now, I, I'm super excited about this conversation. Kristen, I want to thank you for agreeing to have this talk with me and, and coming on the podcast, because I believe what um, you're going to bring to my audience uh, can, can help improve things in so many different organizations and in so many different lives. So thank you. Oh gosh, Dave, thanks for having me. This is going to be great. So let's kind of start off where it all begins for all of us. Um, where were you born and raised? I was born outside of, of Baltimore actually, and then moved to suburban Philadelphia when I was seven because my parents bought a company. And they, this was in the early nineties. And my dad had realized that um, there was for everyone who, anyone who doesn't know, there was like a minor recession in the early nineties and a lot of people lost their jobs and, and he was one of them. And when he was thinking about his next steps, he realized that he wanted to, first of all, work for himself, which anyone who has ever met my dad probably is shocked that he ever worked for other humans. Like he's just one of those people where like, oh, you should not work for other people. You should be in charge of yourself. Um, but he also wanted to do a kind of social impact company. We didn't have that language back then. But what he really wanted to do was create space for people who are left out of the labor market. So he had a business partner, um, bought a manufacturing company in a under-resourced section of Philadelphia with the idea to bring back no-skill manufacturing. So could we create a job where all you needed was to show up sober every day and on time? That was the question. So, uh, and they did, that's what they managed to do. And so my entire life, I was raised in really kind of half a foot in this other world that none of my friends knew. So I had a really typical suburban existence. We didn't have the white picket fence, but we had the dog, we had the cat, like we had all the, all the extracurricular activities. And then I also knew that where, if you were born where we owned Abby, our, our factory, Abby Color, your life would be very different than mine. And you, you are not worth less as a human than I am. And that was something that my parents were very, very clear to raise me with. And so we have a lot of words for this now. And I understand I have a social work degree and I have a PhD in sociology. I understand all of the kind of theoretical concepts, but my parents weren't part of some sort of, you know, radical movement. They just wanted to make sure their kids knew what privilege was. 
they wanted to make sure that their kids knew that their kid that they had sacrificed a ton to give us a better life and our responsibility is to give other people a better a better life we were raised on the peter parker principle like we had great power so it comes with great responsibility and how do you do it what do you what do you how do you respond to being born on third base is one of the questions my brother talks about a lot and so i you know lived my merry life and i've always been people focused i was a youth worker i was in theater i did the college professor thing for a little while i've always been fascinated with humans and whereas my dad is fascinated with numbers which is which makes our conversations entertaining all the time but it's it's always been a thing for me knowing and working alongside and trying to really truly create safety and family in the, the in our family business that people make choices and choices are made for them and those all those choices have consequences that should come without moral judgments so if it's you're seven times more likely if you're born in the zip code our factory is in you're seven times more likely as a teenage girl to get pregnant than finish high school that's just like where you're born and that the city of Philadelphia doesn't pay for comprehensive sexual health education. And in the nineties, there was really not a whole, a great way to get contraceptives and there still isn't. Um, and you don't know, like you just don't know. And we're, but we morally punish people all the time for not knowing things. And that itched me a lot my whole life. And I was always the kid in my theoretical classes that was like, okay, but how does this feed people? How does this give them shelter? How does this give them a job? So I, I traveled a bunch and my PhD is from Northern Ireland. So I actually lived over there for a couple of years and my husband is Northern Irish. And when my, it came time to talk to my brother about us taking over this family business, cause it went from one company to about seven, it became a network. And we wrote a mission statement together, which is to impact lives and create wealth. So everything in our lives, our everything in my family life is is driven towards how do we impact lives and how do we create holistic wealth, emotional, physical, psychosocial, economic for sure. But how do we help people reach the fullness of themselves and whatever their definition of that is? What can our role be? So as Brian and I, that's my little brother, we decided to uh, take over from my dad. Uh, one of the elements that we that we realized is that my skill set is people based. I am not particularly good at making things. Um, my brother is amazing. He loves manufacturing. He can get in the guts of a reactor and figure it out. He loves that, loves that stuff. I'm the person that sits and reads like 900 pages and then wants to write and talk and think and do all of these things. So as we discussed my gifts and Brian's gifts and what that looked like, we started a division of my own called Abbey Research, which is uh, every single company is called Abbey within our network because that was the original company that we bought. So it's called Abbey Research. My name is not Abbey. My, my father's mother's name is not Abbey. We just bought a company called Abbey and we've called it everything since because we're not super creative people. And the mission became how do we help other people see the world the way that we do? How do I meet with business owners and community organizations and help them understand that people are people? And you can hold people and profits in tension. You don't have to choose. You can hold people and your customers in tension. You don't have to choose. You can choose both, like that's a thing. And in the middle of that, how do we help people be better people full stop? I have 
I am utterly insanely privileged with the education I have. I mean, it's nuts. Like it's nuts. Who gets to do what I get to do? Like no one. So what I want to do then is turn around and say to all the people living their lives, Hey, these really complicated things about being human, which is really hard, by the way, being human is real hard. We don't give that enough credit. It's real, real difficult. What I would love to do is give you some simple ways to do it better. And so let's work that out together. And so that's kind of the, the whole thing. I've had this legacy my entire life of thinking of other people, which I'm really grateful for. And we've coalesced that into um, a lot of the businessy stuff, like all of the statistics about the, you know, inclusivity makes your, your organization better. Well, okay, here's all the data, but then I, here's 30 years of lived experience. I can tell you it does because here's what it looks like. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Where does this legacy of helping other people, where does that begin? Was there a, a defining moment in your early life that, uh, or just lessons that your parents taught you over time? That's such um, a great question. I don't remember a time where we weren't and like where I didn't want to. So it was always like my parents tell the story of like right after they got married, they gave away their last $100 to help somebody um, in their church go on a mission trip. And so the, that's the family I was born into is what can we do to help? How can we help? What does that look like? My mother is a amazing, wonderful Scotch Protestant, which means that she makes a casserole better than anybody. So every time somebody in a church in the churches we grew up in needed anything, we were there. Um, and it, it never, it was never something that was not part of my life. I'm, I'm sure you visited the the factory and stuff as, oh, yeah. as a young girl. What what was that experience like seeing this other world? It well, and when I was little, it was really terrifying. I can't lie. So like when I was seven and we started going, I mean, it's burned out. There's burned out houses. You step over. There's trash everywhere because trash collection doesn't happen all the time in the city. Um, you know, as, and now as the as the opioid crisis has exploded, I mean, as I drive to work now, I see people who are in various levels of inebriation stumbling around what happened. And sometimes they stumble into the street, and you have to be careful not to hit them. And and all of those kind of things. When I was little, it was scary. I mean, I learned what a gunshot sounded like a long time before a lot of my friends did because it, you know, I overheard it at one point. I knew what I knew what syringes looked like and and used condoms because I stepped over them to get into work. Um, you know, when I was 11, 12, 13 years old, because in a family business, there is no such thing as labor laws. So I've been working in the family business since I was seven, just doing various things um, and have then a of course, officially drawn a paycheck for several years. We, we uh, cleared the labor law strata uh, several years ago. So we're in the clear now, but it was, it was, yeah, it was weird and scary because I was seven, your life that you have is normal. And then here's this other thing. But then the longer that we did it, the more times we went down there, the more my parents were careful to give context. We used to do this thing called the Thanksgiving tour of thanks where my dad would wake us up early in the morning on Thanksgiving and drive us around a neighborhood and tell us the history of that neighborhood and then ask us to think about, and we were little, so this was developmentally good. This probably lasted until we were six, I was 16, 17, to think about what you'd be thankful for if that was your story. What would you be thankful for if you lived here? And what are you thankful for now that you've seen that and you know that, how are you gonna change? And it became so famous among my circle of friends 
that I had people in college and grad school that when would come home and ask my dad to take them on the on the tour of thanks. And they wanted to see and hear and learn about these neighborhoods that you don't hear about anywhere else. I mean, our neighborhood used to be the, the absolute center, the neighborhood we work, we work in in Kensington, used to be the center of textile manufacturing in the United States. Our factory was built in the early 1900s to be a textile dye shop. The, the hooks where you took the cotton all the way up to the fourth floor are still there. They don't work. They are condemned on our building, but we leave them there because they're decorative and pretty. And it's a good history. I have stuff, I have equipment in my building that hasn't been used since like 1925, but we're making the same dye. We just do it in different ways now. And so it's, but you know, growing up outside of Philadelphia, you don't learn that history of Philly, that Kensington was great until the sixties when industrialization and the race riots combined to mean that all of all textile dyeing went to China. So what did that do to the neighborhood that it left behind? Okay, well, let's figure out. There's a neighborhood in Philly called Fishtown. It's up and coming and gentrified now, but it was literally where people bought their fish, literally. So we don't talk about the history of Fishtown and the kind of folks that lived there and the working class aspect of it now that you know people are buying condos for $2,000 a month. And that's the kind of world that, that I was raised in was to ask those questions. When you see new construction, what does that mean for the neighborhood? Because it affected our employees. When you hear things, laws made on the news, is that just good for one population or is it good for all populations? And my parents just troubled the narrative a lot. And so I was never allowed to rest, to intellectually rest I was always uh, encouraged towards curiosity. Talk a little bit about the the work that you're doing now, and and how you're bringing awareness, and how you're you're helping people overcome their their lot in life. Well, I mean, in a certain way, like now, what what Abby does is we just we have a couple of jobs all the time. Um, in our factory that are labor based, where the only requirement is to show up sober every day and on time. We've kept that. And we have a super low turnover if you make it past your 90 day probation, because um, we try to treat people like people. Our folks tell us that they feel safe there. Um, you know, we are flexible with things like we understand the word family means that sometimes you do have to leave at two o'clock in the afternoon because your kid is sick. And if you're not going to take the piss out of us, we're not going to punish you and we're going to all work on this together and figure it out. So I've, we've got stories like people that came to us who had like a 200 credit score that now own their own homes because um, we provided them, we were able to provide them with safe and consistent employment. Um, and there's all that kind of stuff. But my favorite, my favorite piece of what we do is that all we're really doing, honestly, is giving people a chance to, to make the choices they always wanted to make. We pay them a living wage and they do everything else. I've got people that still live paycheck to paycheck and they don't have to because we definitely pay them enough to where they could have a savings account. And they choose not to, that's fine, no judgment. I've got other people that save everything. I've got other people that made choices to where their furnishments mean that they can't. We're gonna, we're gonna show up for you in, eth in our ethic. We're gonna promise you all the time that when you're in this building, you are physically and emotionally safe. And if neither one of those things is true, we wanna know about it to see if we can fix that. How did your family create that environment of an emotionally safe workplace? Got a lot of trial and error, <laughs> a lot of trial and error. Um, 
the the biggest for us one of the things that we discovered was the biggest thing was that people could trust that we always had their back and that we would take what they told us seriously so even if it was gossip we took it seriously and we would talk to them like people and not cogs in a wheel we knew their names uh we asked after their kids um my in the early days especially my dad went to a lot of weddings we've been to a lot of funerals um every time something happy or sad happens with our employees we send flowers um it's little things like that emotionally safe is, is harder for sure but the thing that we try to do we we have a zero tolerance policy for bullying we have a zero tolerance policy for harassment the minute someone doesn't feel safe they come to somebody in management and it will be taken care of um emotionally safe is certainly harder and there's been a lot of conversations about like okay you perceive this as this the person says it differently can we just have a really hard and honest conversation about how to all move forward because there's always there's never any one truth so how do we move forward together and what i'd like i would hope if some of our employees were on this call what they would tell you is that we always treat them like people and we treat them we treat their complaints and their fears as valid and we may look at them and say okay i heard you out and i disagree with you and i can't go there but they know that we haven't dismissed them out of hand and one of the things that you speak a lot about in your talks is inclusivity and i'm i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what inclusivity means to you, what it means for, for organizations uh, like the one that you own and operate, and for you know organizations of varying sizes and, and scopes? That's a great question. Fundamentally, what an inclusive organization looks like is that everybody gets to show up on their own terms. And what I mean by that is that no one is a token, no one is any one thing. So you don't just have the woman in the room and every time you want a woman's perspective, you look at her and ask for the woman's perspective. She can't speak for women. She is not all women. Like none of us are Whitney Houston. Like she can only bring herself to the table. So an inclusive organization is allowing people to bring of them what they want to bring to the table. So it's really easy when we talk about inclusive organizations to hammer home on race and gender. Those are the things we hammer home a lot on and sexuality to a certain extent. And those are wonderful and we need to have inclusive organizations on that front, but every human is so many more things than just those three things. Every human has within them so much diversity already. This is why I say that there's no such thing as building a diverse in, in organization, you already have one. What you have to do is figure out how to make it inclusive to where all of those intersections, all of those pieces of people's lives can come out and play. So for example, um, I am not just a white lady who is uh, middle class and owns a company and some of the other things that my employees know about me. I also have chronic pain and high anxiety and I'm on medication for both of those things. And so my employees now, because I've been able to share that with them, also know that if they're having a bad mental health day, I know what that feels like and we're gonna talk about how they can be supported. And I show up in meetings sometimes with my brother and my father and our vice president, all of whom are dudes and all of whom I have deep respect for. And I am never just the woman in the room. 
I show up with my expertise. They want to know for, okay, social work perspective, talk to me about what people are doing right now. Sometimes they'll be like, yeah, so like, are we doing the right thing by women? Are we, but most of the time it's like so another piece of one of my things I bring to the table. I'm never just one thing. And nobody in our building is ever just one thing. Also, um, so that's so that's one piece of inclusivity. A big part of getting to inclusivity is having a conversation about equity. And this is where it's a little bit more, you can't just have an inclusive convert like organization by declaring it so. <laughs> like, hey, by the way, we're now inclusive. You're welcome, everybody get along now. No, it does take some work because one of the things we have to acknowledge is that there are systems in place in society that, that make some groups have more power than other groups. There is a kind of default understanding of human. So laws are made, rules are passed, fashion is designed, technology is designed. It's all designed for a white, middle-aged, middle-class, middle-income man who is heteronormative, in a married relationship, uh, has a spouse that either, who's a spouse that does all of the domestic labor and has a partner that does domestic labor and um, has a certain size hand. Like literally cell phones are not tested on women's hands. Like they're, they're just not, they're tested on men's hands. So all of us like need pop sockets to just try to even like fucking move our phone around, but they're not tested on women's hands. Like even like even birth control. So we, we passed the first birth control pill after a trial of 52 women for one year. And ever since we've just been like, oh, it's totally safe for all women. Okay, cool. So there's just, there's some stuff like that where we've made a lot of assumptions about what a human is. That's not actually true. Humans are wider and, and wilder and diverse and, uh, and weirder than the, the standard we've set. And so equity takes that, like takes that knowledge, takes that context and says, okay, we've got to fix some systems to get to equality. And we've got to get to equality before we can get to inclusivity. So we've got to look at the systems that are in place. And some of them may exist in your organization and some of them may not. A lot of them are just society-wide. Do I think that you are actively, if there's no women in your, in your leadership, are you a whole bunch of terrible, terrible people that don't believe that women are humans? I'm going to guess no. I'm going to guess that there's a whole lot of other things there, that there's a pipeline problem, that women aren't in your leadership pipeline, that there's, um, that your industry isn't friendly to women, that your industry isn't reaching out to little girls, that your industry is not correcting men who are overtly misogynist, that there isn't a language policy about how we speak about humans. Like, I'm going to guess that those are the problems. None of those make you bad people. They all just make you ready to learn. But you've got to be willing, because the other thing I always say when we're talking about this, and, and my partner, Dr. Aaron, does too, is that, again, I'll say it again, being a human is really hard and none of us know how to do it. So every single time you try to be a better person, or you build a better organization, or you become a better parent, you're going to hit against something that you're going to feel terrible about not knowing. You're gonna emotionally hit against a thing where you're like, oh, that was, that, was really, that was really shitty of me. Like, oh, and you're gonna feel really guilty. Totally normal. You gotta move past that real quick because guilt is not a productive emotion. It's just not. So you're gonna learn 
that, so let's say you do a gender audit of your, I mean, we're talking, you and I are talking. So let's say you do a gender audit of your firehouse and you find out that the reason that nobody makes it, that no woman makes it past Lieutenant is because the person, I don't know your ranks, I apologize, but the, the dude right above that is known by like within the organization as being a bit lecherous like makes the jokes about how a woman's body looks in a thing or that we still allow pinup calendars in lockers you're gonna go oh of course women don't feel safe here that's terrible i should have seen it somebody might be feel really guilty about not firing that guy or laughing at those jokes or doing whatever that cool you know that now so what are you going to do about it are you going to let him keep acting like that if you choose not action then you better be held you better get ready to be held accountable but once you know if you literally didn't know something i don't think you can be held accountable for it but once you know and you choose no action get ready for that accountability because it's coming for you i'd like to get get your impression of a situation and and how if you were the person uh, consulted on this situation, how you would approach it, how you would maybe coach or, uh, you know, what actions you would recommend? Because a lot of times in, in organizations that have existed for a long time, especially male-dominated organizations, now that we're on this, this topic of... Uh, gender equality and, and inclusivity. And I can talk to a little bit about this, having come from the fire service and grown up in it. Um, you know, a lot of times the firehouse can be somewhat of a, you know, locker room kind of atmosphere, a lot of, a lot of jokes, a lot of stories, you know, and then introduce a female firefighter. And I mean, I, I have to be honest, when I was a firefighter and prior to working on my ignorance, I would have the same, the same kind of response. But this is a common response. Oh, shit. Now we're fucked. You know, mm -hmm. everything. Now we got to watch our mouth. Now it's not going to be fun anymore. Now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that creates a, a negative vibe for that, that woman coming in there. They're, they're now the outsider. And every once in a while, you'll have a moment where the woman's in another room and you can joke around and laugh. And then they come in and everything stops. Man, that has got to be... I mean, well, we've all been in those situations where people are laughing and joking and you come in the room and... Like, oh, and she knows. She knows like, what she's doing walking into that environment. Yeah. When there is a culture where the the woman does not feel safe, that they would rather endure comments or you know grab assing or or flirting or even some kind of sexual harassment. Well, even when it's just. Um, it's not because I think in a lot of organizations, they uh, define sexual harassment as a uh, quid pro quo kind of situation where if you do this, I'll do this for you or 
Yeah. It can be, it can also just be any unwanted, any clearly rebuffed and unwanted advances. So if she was constantly, if it's not even that, she, that someone's holding power over her head or their head, because this absolutely st happens with all genders, um, it can also be that they've routinely said, no, I'm not going to do that or please stop. And it persists. When the situation is one in, in such that the woman wants to be a part of the group and just laughs along with whatever crap is going on and, and doesn't make that hard line, then it's not determined to be sexual harassment. Often not legally, no. And so you have this culture where, you know, the, the woman is excluded, doesn't mm -hmm. feel a part of the group, and, but they want to be a part of that group. They work mm -hmm. very hard. They, and they feel as though enduring that behavior is better than the treatment that would come after reporting it or you know, drawing that hard line in the sand, like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to accept this behavior anymore. Um, how does one go about changing that culture? Well, that's such a great question. And this is, uh, you know, I, I, if I was a, a lot of other consultants, I'd be like, well, you hire me and I charge you a whole lot of money. And, um, but the true answer is that you by hiring her into that environment, you already set yourself up to fail. So if you expect her to be the change, then that's that's asking too much. There should already be conversations about how if you can't make this joke in front of your wife, it's not an appropriate joke. If you can't make this joke in front of your 18 year old kids, it's not an appropriate joke. It's not funny to talk about this. We don't allow pinup calendars anymore we don't allow this kind of stuff anymore if I hear homophobic shit coming out of your mouth we don't allow it anymore if you are not already doing that work that woman is screwed that gay person is screwed that Muslim is screwed if you're not already doing that work don't bother hiring somebody you got to be willing to do the work to say hey this kind of like this kind of stuff isn't going to fly anymore. Now, there's a lot of different ways to do that because there's a lot of different leadership styles. There are organizations I know where it gets real top down and they're like, I'm just going to ban it all. And what essentially ends up happening is they clean house and then they hire people that they like <laughs> and they hire people that, that already do that. There's a lot of other ones and, and, and I've seen this be very effective that kind of do it really slyly and spend a lot of time getting to know the rank and file as it were. I hate that phrase, but and learning what matters to them. And then, so again, you're diversifying people besides just seeing them as a firefighter or seeing them as a, the, the organization I'm thinking of in particular were construction workers. So no, thinking of them as construction workers. And so it was like, hey, does everybody know that like Billy has a kid with diabetes? You know what we're gonna do? We're, gonna, we're all gonna do the diabetes walk this year. And you're all gonna show up and you're all gonna do it. So, cause in other ways that we see humans as humans can expand to other ways. So if you have, and I will say as a human person that is almost 40, I am very tired of the locker room excuse. And I am very tired of hearing that boys will be boys. And some of that is because I was raised to never, ever be allowed to make those jokes or do those things. 
which I think is, I mean, like you can't offend me if I was in the middle of that and you said those jokes, like I just call you out and be like, that's not funny. Like that's, but like you, I don't get offended. Um, I taught sex ed to teenagers. You cannot shock or offend me, but I am tired of that being an excuse for being, for having shitty behavior. If I don't expect men to be better then what the hell am I doing here? And I don't think that this is, I don't think anyone's not capable of it. I don't think, I don't think that's true. And I think that a lot, there's a lot of really good academic research as to why frat houses and locker rooms and all of that kind of stuff form the way they form. And a lot of it is the lowest common denominator of wanting to fit in. So change what it means to fit in. Change what it means to fit in and you'll either lose or attract people the way it works, uh, but it's hard and it requires creativity and it requires some stick to your gunsness. But if your first step is hiring a non-typical hire, nothing's gonna go well. I used to think that women needed to step up and be stronger leaders and, and like work really hard to create that change and don't put up with the shitty behavior. But that's a lot to ask. It is. And sometimes we just, sometimes we're tired. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it, I mean, like, this is the old adage, right? Men are afraid that women will make fun of them and women are afraid that men will kill them. Hmm. It's, there are so many times that I don't speak up because I don't know the level of anger that somebody might bring back at me. Um, and I am a fairly, like, I'm a, I'm a fairly, aware and strong person and I still am not a mind reader so there's times that I just stay quiet because I think that person that that man might hurt me or might hurt my family throughout uh, the last couple of years um <clears throat> is that I really believe that it's uh the responsibility of men in leadership positions in male-dominated organizations to create those expectations of other men um, without that the research backs you up the science backs you up without that you you can't expect women to to fight that fight no especially because not every woman wants to because like that's the other thing right like you might hire a woman who doesn't who just wants to keep her head down and do that work and be treated like one of the guys and that's all she wants. And it's not fair to her to then ask her to be a trailblazer. Not everybody wants to be that. Somebody, some people just want to do their job. And so it's, and it's also, it's just not a holistic change. You're completely right. It doesn't actually do anything beyond a tick box exercise of saying, good news, guys, we hired a woman. Can we get that federal funding now? There's instances across the country throughout probably the last 10 years that I'm aware of you know, I'm sure it was worse and a lot more prevalent years before that. But in the last 10 years, there's been cases where, you know, it wasn't necessarily sexual harassment, but there was really shitty behavior, um, behavior of a sexual nature that, you know, should have been condemned. Uh, 
it was clear that women did not want to come forward because of how they would have been treated. Mm -hmm. But the behavior was known. Mm -hmm. When an investigation occurs, when the women know that if they say this happened, their name is going to be public record and what happened is going to be public record and that they very likely will not get uh, represented. Um, and so the person, the offender, you know, a lot of these organizations are, are union and the union by law is respond, you know, is required to defend the person that uh, was accused. And now the woman who is also a union member does not get represented, does not get protection, and they're hung out to dry. And they know that that's going to happen. So what happens when there's an investigation? They go, oh, nothing happened. And so then everything is just peachy keen, uh, you know, and and that to me is a direct failure of the leadership of those organizations because they know and they're just putting the blinders on and doing, you know, checking boxes to say that everything's fine. Yeah, I mean, how many of these names can we do? Like the university, both Michigan State and the University of Michigan just had to settle for tens of millions of dollars with victims uh, of doctors that they employed on their campus. Um, USA Gymnastics is, if they're not bankrupt, they should be with how often they, like literally the Boy Scouts of America filed chapter 11 because of how many reparations they had to pay. So this is, I study endemic sexual assault as a hobby in a way, um, because I'm fascinated with the fact that the institution will always protect itself, always. And so I, I was at Baylor during the, during the scandal with Art Bryles and um, his, the football players that he turned a blind eye to, to their assault of uh, students. <clears throat> and I'm a woman, in academia, I've got stories of my own friends um, who have done the same things. And academia and ministry um, are not are not super friendly places to women either. Um, so only about 14% of the pulpits in the United States have a woman in it, and 65% of women, 65% of congregations are women. So we've got we've got pipeline problems in a lot of places. And I completely agree, it's a complete failure. The organization will always protect itself though. So then what do we as humans do? We get loud. And those of us with power to call out, those of us with the social standing to call out, get loud and ask for accountability. And the way that we currently treat and prosecute sexual assault in this country and in every country I've ever heard of, by the way, there's no, there's no one that does this particularly well, but I don't mean that there's not a way to do it. Put so much onus on the victim, so much onus on the survivor. We've also legally defined sexual assault in some very bizarre ways that create a lot of loopholes for people. 
And so it's very easy for institutions to say, well, he didn't commit sexual assault and we don't want to ruin his career and, you know, all those kind of things. So it takes a lot of people like you who are in positions of power standing up and saying, I don't give a flying fuck about his career. He hurts someone. We also, as Americans, have a thing where if he doesn't do it to multiple women, it's not a big deal. Oh, it was just that one time. People still watch Woody Allen movies. It was just that one time. I really like this person's art. So I'm still gonna listen to Michael Jackson with, I'm still gonna listen to R. Kelly, even though these are, I'm still gonna watch the Cosby show, even though these are credible. Now you can watch that and say, I know he's a shitty person. I'm still gonna consume this art, but there's a difference between that and being a stan. I'm still gonna stand Michael Jackson forever. Okay, well, there are credible abuse allegations <laughs> that you've got to wrestle with as a person. If you choose not to wrestle with it, that's on you. But you really, really should because these aren't crackpots. People do not come forward for shits and giggles. Christine Blasey Ford is still, I think, in witness protection from her testimony against Justice Kavanaugh. People do not, if she's not, then it's like very recently she was put out of it. Because I know at the beginning of the pandemic, she was still getting death threats. So people don't come forward as a hobby. There is no notoriety that is positive with this. And so the first thing that we all do is we believe and stand with victims and survivors. We call for investigations because it is important to have the paperwork in our legal system. But then we have the bigger cultural conversation of whatever this thing finds, we've got to figure out why this is even a conversation here. How is this even credible enough to be a rumor? I don't care if it's true or not. I care that it's a conversation. And if it is, that means things are happening that I as a leader don't know about. Things are happening on my watch that disgust me and we're gonna do it. Now, the problem is you and I both know, Dave, that most, a lot of leaders in this country see no problem with a lot of this stuff. And that's the true issue. And so those, are, so we've got to campaign and educate and, hold in the light and, and do all of the emotional and spiritual and psychological things that we need to do to change those minds. I am less interested in facts when it comes to this because there will never be justice. Because even if she does get someone fired or he does get somebody fired, even if they get somebody fired, the amount of emotional damage potentially done to the victim, I still believe means that there's not justice just like necessarily but we live in a rape culture that permits rape to happen. We permit this to happen all the time. And we're not that bothered by it, if we're completely honest. Most of the time it just makes us click on an article faster. So as Americans, we also have to come to grips with the fact that we don't actually think women are worth that much. We have to come to grips with the fact that someone's career is more important than someone's body. And until we really reckon with that as human beings, this is going to keep perpetuating. Facts or no facts. Is there a way to protect the victim better? I think, I think there is. Um, I, it, I think it's circumstantial. Because like I, my most experience, I should say, is on college campuses. And there's definitely ways to do it better on college campuses. Um, definitely. I don't have as much experience in, I have no experience with unions. So I have no experience with that. I can't answer that question at all. Um, 
But one of the things that I would love us to stop doing is making them press charges. I understand that we have to in some way, shape or form, but pressing charges means a testimony. And that is gonna, that means that they'll always be found out. That's always public record, even if it's anonymized in a way, you know? But we've been able to hide a lot of things in this country, including Al Capone for a really long time. So are there better ways to hide things? Yes. Do we, I just think we have to want to do it. There's a really great um, uh, mini series, I should say on Netflix for anyone who wants to think about how we, how we prosecute and talk about sexual assault victims. It's called Unbelievable. It stars uh, Tony Collette and um, Caitlin Deaver and um, one other person whose name is blanking that I adore. And I'm, it's like on the tip of my tongue anyway, it's like eight episodes. And it's a true story about a girl who recanted her rape accusation because the police put pressure on her to do so. And these other police officers that then find the guy 13 years later, and he has raped a lot of other women. He has assaulted a lot of other people. And actually, yeah, it's, I think there's a couple not, not women in there. It's, that one's a really great one on what procedures look like and what procedures possibly need to change. I should also say that we don't have an international data, we don't have a national or international database around accusations like that to where cops in, even sometimes we don't have state databases where people, where cops who are trying to prosecute things can find out if they did something in another county. We don't have the tech. So if we could up the tech, that's important. My friends who are sexual assault advocates would tell, would tell me that one of the ways we can protect victims is to process rape kits faster and end the backlog of rape kits and kind of help have a better understanding of the, of the scope of this issue. Um, so there's a lot of answers. That's not, I'm, I just know there has to be a way and there are people smarter than me who know how to, who know how to protect people my entire you know, conversation about protection comes from books I read and television shows I watch. I'm not a bodyguard, but there has to be a way to do it. But I think a huge thing will be to continue to speak for those of us who, as loud as we can, when there's a conversation, again, I'll use Dr. Ford and Justice Kavanaugh, for instance. She was dragged through the mud. She was mocked and he was mocked too, because that's what SNL's job is, but she was mocked. And if you're, if anyone listening is in a situation in the future where like that kind of conversation is happening and there's somebody within your earshot that you're in a relationship with who says, oh, she's just doing it for attention. One of the ways to stop this and to protect victims is to in that moment say, we know that, we know that people don't do that. People don't do this for attention. You can decide if you care that he did this. You can decide you care that this is her story, but she's not making it up. So just be very firm. We know that people don't make things up. What your decision is, is you might not think that that disqualifies him from being a Supreme Court justice. That's fine, man. If you, I disagree with you, but if you think that doesn't disqualify him, that's a different conversation than she's a liar. And just get as bare bones as you can with people. 
as often as you can. That's actually statistically not true. And a simple Google search will answer all of these questions. That's not true. So the real question is, do you care? Something like that. And that's one of the ways that we keep people safe is that those of us who know truth keep speaking it. It, it boggles my mind how many people will just turn a blind eye to, to poor behavior. And it's, and it's men and women. Oh, absolutely. Yes, we need to be clear about that. That it, when I say a rape culture, it's everybody. Everyone's complicit in it. How many times as a girl have I, have I heard about, um, you know, a sexual assault and been like, I wonder what she was wearing. What the hell does it matter? Why am I even thinking that? And I've got to stop that right in the butt. Another great um, piece of art is Promising Young Woman, the movie by Emerald Fennell that won Oscars a little while ago. That pokes a lot of holes in, in a lot of the stuff that we do. But we are cult inculturated. We are programmed as human beings to believe that it is always the victim's fault and they were always asking for it. And so as human beings, we have to fight against the culture. We have to fight against it all the time. And there's still, I mean, like my, my mom and I have had this conversation. I was around the same time that Me Too came out where her generation too has to wrestle with the fact that, that they, a lot of things that are assaults were acceptable behavior then. And we've moved the needle to say like, no, like people don't get to touch you against your consent. That's just not how this ever works. But like she was a secretary in New York in the 60s. She saw and heard things that she didn't agree with in the seventies. And she's like, that's assault. I'm like, yeah, ma, it is. Whether the person felt assaulted or not is a separate conversation, but textbook definition, that's assault. So it's all this kind of, it's all, it's all very messy. It's all very messy because we're talking about humans, but it, it's really easy to excuse poor behavior, to be honest, if it doesn't directly affect us because humans are also fundamentally selfish creatures and our brains hate change. Our brains fear change. Our brain's job is to keep us safe and to keep us going and change is scary. And so we fight against it. And so it's work to change. Stasis is safe, even if stasis is killing us. It's easier to keep smoking, not just because of the nicotine, but because your, your body doesn't want to change things. So it'll keep you in stasis forever. You have to work to change it. What advice would you give to, well, I mean, it, it would be valid advice to men or women um, that are struggling with some form of unwanted sexual behavior, or even if it's not even sexual, but just poor behavior and due to the culture in that environment, they don't feel empowered enough or safe enough mm -hmm. to say that's enough. Well, first of all, I would say, I'm so sorry, that's your story. That sucks. That really sucks. And then I would say, I don't have a blanket advice because every situation in that kind of situation is different but I hope that there is somebody in your life you feel safe with talking about it with. In an ideal scenario, that person would be in a position of power to change things. And that would be, I would hope that that's the case. If it's not, I hope there is someone that 
you can at least tell so that you're not dealing with this alone. And that person might have a solution. The lie that if you tell someone you'll get fired is a lie. If somebody finds out you'll be in trouble is a lie. There are people, and, it, and I'll say this, if you have absolutely no one that you can trust in your life, there are hotlines. And call and get advice. Call and tell your story. And they will know what to do. I'm hesitant to give blanket advice, except that find somebody to share this with because it's too big and ugly and shaming to carry alone. And if you carry it by yourself, you may convince yourself that it's your fault or that you're asking for it, or it's not a big deal. And all of those are lies. It is a big deal. It is not your fault. And you don't have to do this alone. And how about advice for that individual that is in a position of power that receives information from somebody, but they're well aware of the culture, they wanna do something, what should their next actions be? So again, caveat that I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an employment lawyer and I'm not an HR specialist, but I'm a, in terms of culture, swing for the fences, man. So I, I, like, I, I'm a huge fan of getting all your ducks in a row. So if it's a physical, so like, let's say it's an actual, let's put some, let's put some parameters here. It's a credible sexual assault allegation. And I say that because they all are, but like, we got to say that. So credible sexual assault allegation. And you are afraid that, but there's no evidence, quote unquote, it's he said, she said. So you're afraid that you're going to get sued by this dude. If you, um, for wrongful termination, if you fire him. That is a five minute phone call to an employment lawyer to ask what to do. What paperwork do I need in place to make sure that I can protect the company and protect this girl or this human? The only answer that is wrong is to bury it. But I will say like, if someone is physically unsafe in your premises, what the hell are you doing keeping the perpetrator around? That's just a cultural ethical gut check. Somebody is not safe in your building and it's on your watch. You gotta get rid of them, man. Not only because of like, because the, the ethic aspect, but like OSHA will have your butt. <laughs> like If you are creating an unsafe work environment, the, the, the government doesn't like that either. So you've gotta, you've gotta just pragmatically do it. I'm a huge fan of swinging for the fences. And a lot of it is because one of the things I've learned is, uh, is that the culture will get over it. So I, the, my father and my brother and I talk about this a lot. There's a line in West Wing where they're talking about letting gays in the military and they ask, it's like first or second season. And the, in the West Wing, the, the joint chief is a black man. So they say like, hey, you know, Fitz, what do you think about gays in the military? Or open out openly in the military, and Fitz goes, "Well, when I joined, the we they went they didn't allow black men, they didn't allow colored people in in the military at all, and uh, the the unit got over it, and now I'm the most powerful man in the American military, and you can beat that with a stick. You look back in history, we've always had things that weren't the culture. That then we decided actually we can change the culture." We can change the culture. Culture is decided by the people who make it up. 
we remake it and demake it every day. That's part of it. So yeah, I mean, I'd say get rid of the perpetrator. Should there be an investigation? Should there be paperwork? Paperwork's important in every organization. We just got to call that. Um, so I'll say actually the very first thing I should have said, because I'm assuming that this person knows this, but I should have said this, is you take that person seriously. You make sure they are heard. You make sure they are safe. And you ask them what they want to do. What do you want to do now? Do you want to go home? Do you want to stay here? Do you want to have an escort? Do you, what do you want? Do you want to press charges? Is this a formal complaint? Ask what they want. And if they want you to, go nuts. But yeah, employment lawyers can tell you how to protect yourself from like legal stuff. And then the other thing is if you're going to get sued, you're going to get sued. But there's a lot of states in this country that you say, well, he like, she says he like touched her inappropriately. The judge will be like, well, that was bad. Case dismissed. If you're not in a position of power in an organization where you see you see that there are some uh, cultural norms that need to change, or you see some egregious behavior that needs to be uh, addressed. If you're not in a position of power or authority, what advice do you have for, for those individuals? This one's the simplest one, because here's the secret, you do have power. You may not have authority, and you may not have control of your organization, but you have power because you have power over your human person and your behavior and your choices and what you say, what you laugh at, what you don't laugh at. You have power within your organization. So you can very quickly become known as the person who doesn't take anyone else's shit. You can become known as the person who is a safe place for other people. You can become known as the person who always does fundraisers for this thing. You can become known as the person who is an advocate for people different than them in the boardroom. You can be the person that is constantly saying, right, but what if, but how does this affect people who aren't in this room? If you are like the lowest man on the totem pole, you can treat people with respect and dignity. You can still move through your life honoring the innate humanity in everybody else around you. You have incredible power. Cultures change because the people within them change. There's lots of ways to do this and it all depends on your personality. I'm a super extrovert and I'm a super people person. So like one of the ways I do is like, I invite people to go see movies with me or go to lectures or go to fundraising house parties. Like, hey, I support this ministry that's in, in Uganda. Do you wanna come along, eat some Ugandan food and hear a story about what they're doing? That's how I do it. My best friend and business partner, super introvert, can't handle that much input, does not like people. She does it other ways. So you all do it in different, we all have our, our ways, but like one of the ways that Aaron and I are both very clearly trying to always do it is what I mentioned earlier, where we just speak truth firmly. And we try as empathy educators, the way we teach empathy is that it's not actually anything to do with emotions. It's everything to do with a choice to understand other people's context. So right now we're the people that are like, you know what, as, as Dave, as you and I talk, we're on week two of the Russian invasion. And so we're trying really, really carefully when people are like, oh, the Russians have invaded. No, 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 the Russian government 
the Russian people very clearly didn't vote for this. So what must it be like to be a Russian person right now? Or also, there's lots of other countries who have been invaded. What is it like to be a Syrian person or a Somali person or a Palestinian person or Israeli person? How do we broaden our perspective? I have no power out in terms of authority. My company is 25 people and my brother and I are in lockstep about nearly everything. So I can just trust Brian to run things, it's great. I have very, very little authority outside of that building. I mean, honestly, I don't even have authority over my husband. So like, you know, I don't have any power anywhere. But where I do have the power is to speak truth with grace and love and firmness and say, I think this is the best way to be human. Do you want to join me? I can't thank you enough for, for having this conversation with me and sharing so much and, and giving this perspective um, some, some life. Uh, I mean, you're so, you're so funny, but <laughs> like just such a great conversation. I, I want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Like I, I think it's a privilege. Is, thank you. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, I think this can help a lot of people. If, if the people in the audience listening to this, um, you know, if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, you can connect with me through uh, my website or social media. And um, I would love to help in any way. For, for those listening, if they would like to um, employ your services, or uh, just connect with you, How, what's the best way? Yes, I love eating. So if you wanna hire me, we're up for it. We really, really appreciate, uh, appreciate eating. So our website is argooddoctors.com and you can find all of our services for keynotes and workshops there. If you're interested in just learning more from us, the best way to do it is our YouTube channel, which if you go to YouTube and Google Abby Research, A-B-B-E-Y, you will find our very robust YouTube channel. And we would love to see you there. Thank you so much, Kristen. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Dave. Thanks for asking. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.